Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we continue our reflections into a particular topic, one special topic, a topic that is tailored to your questions. Yesterday evening, I made note that we are going to take up at least one, if not two passages, the first being 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Now, I was hopeful that we might get to the second passage that comes to us from Matthew 23, verse 9, where Jesus says, call no man your father. God willing, we will get there. But as it relates to this first passage, the fact that we have one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. The question was tied to the saints. And so what I wanted to do was essentially take, like I've done before, a more holistic approach to to answering this question. So we need to answer, and just not the shorthand, but also the longhand. We will look more extensively at saints. Now, have I talked about this before? Well, if you are a faithful listener, you know I've talked about this a great deal. But that being said, we are setting Thursday aside and really establishing an archive Thursday evening to answering your questions so that you know where to go. Uh, This evening, I will be primarily drawing from Scott Hahn's Reasons to Believe. We already worked through Reasons to Believe, but there is always more insight to be gained, even if we've already talked about it. We invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit, we call upon the Holy Spirit, and begin to work through this, and, and hopefully... Uh, in doing so, you have a better understanding why uh, Catholics believe what they believe as it relates to just not the saints, but also, as you have heard me say before, and I will say later on this evening, why we need to approach Scripture in such a way we, where we don't isolate a particular verse. All right, all that being said, again, the question, in the light of that passage, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, what do you do with your teaching on the saints? Well, certainly you have a reason to ask the question because of Exodus 20, verses 2 to 5. What does the very first of the Ten Commandments say? Misordered worship leads to problems. Let us read Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 to 5. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So, (laughs) where do we get off with our teaching on the saints? Well, what does Scripture say, right? So we're going to treat some other passages before we get to 1 Timothy 2.5, and then we're going to look carefully at 1 Timothy 2.5. As Dr. Hahn reminds us in uh, Reasons to Believe, the New Testament gives us several precious glimpses of the afterlife of God's faithful people, 
and all our doctrine and practices follow from these revelations. So this is very important. So where do we go? Well, let us turn to the letter to the Hebrews, especially chapter 11. Why? Because chapter 11 speaks of all the Old Testament heroes in very honorific terms. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Samuel, and many others make their appearance as men and women who have high honor. Their lives on earth, the author to the Hebrews says, prepared them for a greater life in a heavenly homeland. If you were to go to Hebrews 11, verses 13 and 16, you read, all of these great patriarchs died in faith. These all, all being the great patriarchs, right, died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, with Christ's redemption, the promise has been fulfilled, right? The heavenly city has been given to the faithful. They are there, says the letter to the Hebrews, and yet they are also with us. What does chapter 12, verse 1 say? They are surrounding us as so great a cloud of witnesses. I love that, as so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, Dr. Hahn here, I think, asks a very important question. Why did the inspired author recall these great figures from long-ago history? Well, quite simply, he wanted to inspire his readers, who were then facing persecution, right, to imitate the patriarch's virtuous example. He presents the ancestors as witnesses and or witnesses giving testimony, right? We were just talking about the importance of witnessing to our faith and bearing testimony to our faith just the other day. So here you have the author to the Hebrews really encouraging the reader of the letter to the Hebrews to be inspired by those who have gone before them, to be inspired by those great witnesses, those who have borne testimony on behalf of truth. So Israel's patriarchs continued to testify as the church remembered their earthly deeds. And I love this point here that Scott Hahn makes. The bright lights of salvation history had kept the faith, even though it had cost them everything. Even as they, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 to 37, suffered mocking and scourging, chains and imprisonment even though they were stoned, sawn in two. I mean, <laughs> you ever stop when you read something and just say, what did sacred scripture just say? Boy, when I was going back through this and rereading through some of these verses, I mean, even though they were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. You see, the letter to the Hebrews wants to inspire my friends, wants to inspire you and I, and in so doing, allow the holy ones who imitated Jesus Christ even before his time to move us. Huh? So as Christians heard the testimony of the lives of these witnesses, certainly we can be assured that they were fortified for their own trials. But you see, my friends, Witnesses do more than testify. Witnesses also observe, right? 
And the author of Hebrews wanted his readers to know that Christians were not alone in their struggles. That again, the heroes of long ago history were with them, watching from a homeland that would one day belong to everyone who persevered in faith. Nor are the saints watching from a distance. They surround the faithful on earth. Uh, This is, again, that great passage that comes to us from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. One of the popular images of the Old Testament is what? The cloud, right? The cloud was about the presence of God. The Old Testament saints dwell in a cloud, we are told, in an enveloping cloud. And so that phrase was ripe with meaning for a first century Jewish audience. For the Hebrews to whom the letter is addressed, the cloud was what? As Scott Hahn says simply, (laughs) God's glory, plain and simple. When God had guided their ancestors through the desert, he appeared to them by day as a what? Pillar of cloud. When he was present among them in the tabernacle and later in the temple, right? They saw only the what? His Shekinah cloud, the glory cloud that attended him. So in the New Testament, the same cloud descended to lift Jesus up to heaven before the wondering eyes of his disciples. And so it is, the faithfully departed who now dwell in the cloud of witnesses were quite literally saints in glory. Mm, mm, mm. Jesus is enthroned in glory, in that cloud where he is the firstborn among many brethren. And in that passage, that comes to us from Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is very important to us, my friends, when we come to understand and appreciate the church as a family of God, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family, and we need to allow those brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us and who have imitated Christ with heroic virtue to inspire us. Huh? I mean, if you were to think about it, Do we not let others inspire us in so many other walks of life? Do we not allow others to convict us by their very example? Why don't we do that with our own Christian faith? Certainly we should, and sacred scripture testifies to this. So what else could we say? Well, since the day of our Lord's enthronement, the Old Testament saints enjoyed a glory they had not known before. At first they, what does Hebrews 11.39 say, did not receive what was promised. But now they are in the promised homeland, even as they surround the church in a cloud. In the book Revelation, the book we just treated in great detail, we see with St. John that there are what? 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the sons of Israel. And certainly, if that is true, For the saints of the old covenant, could we not say that that is true for the saints of the new? Let us go here to the book Revelation. Scott Hahn goes to the book Revelation to reflect further into the new covenant saints. We know that saints are in glory. It is fair to ask, however, how they live now and what might be the limits, maybe, of their knowledge and activity. Well, the book Revelation gives us some answers. John the evangelist, John the seer, could see heaven. Why? Because he had entered the glory cloud. When he received his vision, he was, what do we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10? In the Spirit on the Lord's day, in the Spirit, 
in a cloud in God's presence. And in this vision, amidst the hosts of heaven, he saw a multitude of saints, but he distinguished those in three categories, martyrs, virgins, and confessors. Let us look at some of these. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So here we have a passage that speaks about those who have borne testimony before us, those who have given witness. Remember, the word testimony comes from the Greek martyrion, witness martyria, where we get the word martyr. So what do we know about the martyrs in heaven based on this particular passage? We know that they communicate with God, right? They call out to him. And interestingly enough, he responds. We know that they are aware of events on earth and that they plead the cause of the just against the unjust. We know too that they have some foreknowledge of the future by the grace of God. They know how events will play out for their fellow servants and their brethren. Did we not just read that? So what we see in the book of Revelation, very much confirms what we have already touched upon as it relates to the letter to the Hebrews, that the martyrs in heaven are a cloud of witnesses around their fellow Christians on earth. Furthermore, they are intercessors in heaven for the cause of the church on earth. And that's very important, that they are intercessors in heaven for the cause of the church on earth. What about the next chapter of Revelation. There we meet the confessors, those, as we read in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we learn from verse 15, the following verse, that this group stands before the throne of God and serve Him day and night within His temple. So their service, of course, is what? Prayer, as we learn just a few verses later. Consider uh, chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. Did you hear that, my friends? And he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. Isn't that beautiful stuff? Just pause for a moment and imagine that if you haven't already. Isn't that a beautiful vision? So their powerful prayer, the, the prayer of the saints, mediated by angels, what? Rises in heaven, but also has immediate effects upon earth. Read verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, voices, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So we see again, not only that the saints are in conversation with God, again, that's just the most basic and simple definition of prayer, 
but also that their conversation touches upon earthly matters and that their conversation has an immediate and powerful effect on earthly events. So the saints receive this power as a blessing from God. It's interesting if you were to fast forward to chapter 14, verse 13, John reports a voice saying what? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So it is clear from John's revelation, as Dr. Hahn puts it here, that the blessings of the saints in heaven cascade from them to bless the earth as well. So from the letter to the Hebrews in the book of Revelation, you have some things to consider, right, as it relates to saints. But again, what do you do with 1 Timothy 2.5? In quoting 1 Timothy 2.5, if we are going to interpret this passage properly, we must first put it in its context. So here is the passage in its entirety from the beginning of the chapter. Pay close attention. This is Paul, again, writing to Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. This is good, and it is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, did you hear those opening verses? Can we really conclude that the saints who intercede for one another are undermining the one mediatorship of Jesus Christ? What did Paul say? I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men. St. Paul is urging Christians to intercede for one another. St. Paul is urging them, the Christians, the people there who Timothy are ministering to, to act as mediators on behalf of specific groups of people, and in this case, of course, civic leaders, right? He's emphasizing that such mediation is acceptable in the sight of God, and that it's actually efficacious. It leads to a quiet and peaceable life. So, Intercessory prayer in this passage in context is not only approved, it's guaranteed to make a difference. Christ is indeed the one mediator. But my friends, here's the overarching truth. The saints share his mediation because they share his life. Remember what the New Testament author means when they speak of the saints. They mean the holy ones, those who have been sanctified by baptism, and that includes the faithful on earth as well as in heaven. Whether in heaven or on earth, the saints can intercede for others precisely because they share the life of this one mediator, Jesus Christ, and he lives in them. What do we read in John chapter 15, verses 7 to 8? If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you will, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. So the intercession of the saints 
steals nothing from God's glory. And I love this particular line from Scott Hahn here. We do not glorify the saints in place of God, but we glorify them in God. I'll read that again. We do not glorify the saints in place of God, but we glorify them in God. He himself, my friends, shared his glory with them as he welcomed them into the glory cloud and made it a great cloud of witnesses, we read, right? (laughs) We can thank God that these witnesses are not mere observers or helpless bystanders. They just don't stand there. They do something. They are Christian. What does the word Christian mean? Does it not simply mean Christ-like, right? Christ-like, the saints plead for us at the right hand of the Father. It is Christ who has given them the privilege of interceding in this way. It is Christ who invests their prayers with power as he invests our own prayers, the intercessory prayers of the saints on earth. We are God's co-workers. We are God's co-workers. So when we honor the saints, my dear friends, we are imitating Christ who honored them first. We honor those whom he honors. We bless those whom he blesses. My dear friends, understand this. Every time we go to a close friend and we say, pray for me, I need your prayers, we are asking someone to mediate on our behalf. Are we not? Spend time with what we talked about here as it relates to the letter to the Hebrews in the book of Revelation. And be mindful also (laughs) that saints are not divine, except in the sense that all Christians are divinized. What does 2 Peter 1, 4 say? We participate in the divine nature of God. Saints deserve reverence only in so far as they are vessels of God's holiness. All the saints on earth and in heaven share in his one holiness. Only God is holy. The saints are creatures, but God is the creator. The saints have been. God is being itself. The saints, each and every one of them, would be lost if it wasn't for God. Their holiness is only as good as God's holiness living inside of them. But yes, they do have to say yes to the will of God. And we should let that yes inspire us, should we not? Just as we are inspired by those who live virtuous lives. Let the saints and their virtue inspire our own lives. And appreciate that what's going on in 1 Timothy 2.5 in context is actually an urging, if you will. <laughs> uh, hey, listen up. You need to pray more. You need to intercede more. You need to go on behalf of your brother or sister in Christ more. It's actually calling us to participate more as mediators for the body of Christ, sharing in the one mediation of Christ. Sharing in the one mediation of Christ. All right, with that, I do want to also, I think we have time, briefly touch upon you shall call no man your father. And we will do so with this word mediator. Why? Well, St. Paul, <laughs> in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, calls himself what? A mediator, one who is a minister of sacrifice. St. Paul was a priest. Because he was a priest, he was also a what? A spiritual father. 
What does he tell the church of Corinth in his first epistle, chapter 4, verses 15 to 16? For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You can also go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 to see similar language. So did you catch that, what Paul just did? He talked about the importance of mentorship, spiritual direction, but then he also spoke to the importance of fathership. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ. So he's a father to the extent that he is what? Well, what did we just say about mediation? In Christ. He is sharing in the one mediation in Christ. St. John demonstrates the same basic assumption as he addresses his congregations as what? My children. My little children in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 1. So St. Paul, acting in the person of Christ as a spiritual father, shares in the one fatherhood of God. Now, what about what Jesus says? Well, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put this passage in context. Let's go back to verse 1, chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by men, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and salutations in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are brethren, and you are all brethren. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called masters, for you have one master, the Christ. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So, call no man your father in context. What is Jesus doing here? Look at the verse before. But you are not to be called rabbi. Well, we never think twice about not calling someone rabbi. What is he doing? Jesus is using hyperbole to post a warning that no one should pridefully desire honorific titles. His words are not meant literally right? Otherwise, Scripture itself would be a contradiction. What did we just read? St. Paul called himself a what? A spiritual father. So again, it's about reading things in context, and just not the verses surrounding that one verse, but also the larger chapter, the larger book, and the Bible as a whole. Once you do that, you'll begin, I think, to see that these verses have a lot much more to offer. Okay, I am looking up at the clock, and we are out of time. I I hope that this time was well spent for you. Uh, please do continue to send me your questions about whatever is on your heart, and I will do my best to answer them. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks for the gift of this time, that the gift of time is enough to praise you and honor you. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.